Without further ado, we are going to turn to the book of James this morning. Last week we did our introduction to the book of James, and uh, this is, other than Hebrews possibly, one of the first letters or epistles that we've looked at that was not written by the Apostle Paul. And we talked about some of the differences between James and Paul's letters. Uh, James, if you're just kind of reading it, it seems just like he goes in and out of different subjects fairly quickly and easily. James tackles several different uh, major subjects, and we'll get through all of those today. But James could have been, it's, you know, possibly a, co- a collection of some of James's writings that were put together and, you know, and then passed out among the believing Jews and the nations that were scattered around Israel. And we find that in the first verse of the letter. When chapter 1, verse 1 begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered who were dispersed about the nation. And we talked about that last week, that there were believing Jews in Jerusalem, of course, on, in Acts chapter uh, 1 and 2 and 3, we talk about the day of Pentecost, and we talk about how the gospel went first to the Jews in Jerusalem. And for the first, you know, six, seven chapters of the book of Acts, the gospel goes exclusively to the Jews in Jerusalem. And then something happens, Stephen is stoned, and Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. And after Stephen is stoned, the Bible says in Acts that a great persecution rose up in Jerusalem, and many of the believers began to be scattered throughout the nations uh, and through through the surrounding cities and and nations surrounding Israel. And this became known as the diaspora or the dispersion, the Jews that were dispersed and scattered. James here, being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is writing these words to encourage those believers who had been scattered out of Jerusalem into other nations. And this is kind of a uh, you know, toss-up between exhortations and warnings. Now, there are many things that, that James wants to warn his uh, you know, believe, warn the believers about as far as them being the people of God uh, in the church. And then there's many exhortations because even though they escape the persecution in Jerusalem, there's still a lot of persecution that they're uh, facing when they go into other parts for the cause of Jesus Christ. So that kind of sets us up here. We're going to just kind of go through chapter by chapter and look at some of the issues that we have here dealing with um, the book of James. You see on our paper that we have there, and hope everyone got a paper over here, we find that um, the first section we find in chapters 1, verses 1 through 18. Chapters 1, verses 1 through 18. And this kind of introduces us to some of the themes. And as we said last week, you know, James will cover a theme, say it's the theme of the rich and poor, and then he'll go on to talk about trials, and he'll talk about something else, and then he'll come back to the themes of the rich and the poor, and then he'll go on to some other themes, and then he'll come back to that theme. Uh, so the first 18 verses introduce us to some of those concerns. And uh, we're on the page that says a walkthrough uh, through James. The one that says, does Paul and James contradict? We'll get to that in a moment. But here in the first 18 verses of the book of James, we have the introduction to the many themes that are of James's major concerns. 
Uh, we find in, beginning in verse number two, he starts it out with the trials that they are going through. He says in verse number two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, the trying of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces patience. Uh, it produces endurance. And that's what you're going to find when James talks about the trials that the believers are facing, he connects that with what God is doing in them. And that's important when we face difficult times and we face trials in our lives because we have a tendency to focus on the trial. We have a tendency to focus on the hardship. We have a tendency to focus on what is happening to us. What James is saying here is to take a different perspective on those trials and see what those trials are working in you what it's producing on the inside of you, how that the trying of your faith produces something. There's an outcome, an expected outcome from James when dealing with the trials, the various trials of life. And he says, let steadfastness, let patience have its, its full effect, its work. Let it work on the inside of you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that's a, a big statement there, but he's using that to put their minds in the trials of life on where they should be and what it's working on the inside of you. And then he inserts in verse number five in James chapter one the issue of wisdom. He urges prayer for wisdom, insisting that prayer must be accompanied by faith to be uh, effective. Trials should evoke prayer for wisdom rather than doubt or double-mindedness. So wisdom in the midst of the trial. So, you know, we, we don't need to disconnect verse 5 from, from verse 4. Uh, he's still dealing with, in the trials, we ask for wisdom. Whenever we're going through things, we seek God's advice. We seek what God would have us to know, what God would have us to do. So he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. To me, that's assuring because it tells me that God is with me in the trial. God is with me in the trial. Uh, he says, let them ask in faith, nothing wavering, not doubting. And verse 8, not being a double-minded person who will be unstable. So he wants us to be grounded in the wisdom of God as we're facing these issues in life. When we go to verse 9, he introduces this theme of the rich and the poor. And we're going to see that over and over again in the book of James. We're going to see this issue of the rich and the poor. And James is, you know, decidedly on the side of the poor, as is the Bible, as was the prophets, as was Jesus. So there was always this uh, tension between those who are rich and those who are poor. Not necessarily though because they were rich or poor, but because of what happened in society, and sometimes still happens in society today, that the rich oppress the poor, that the rich use the poor. They see themselves as better than the poor. When, when the Christian narrative is that, is that God oftentimes used and worked through and blessed the poor instead of the rich, because the rich were trusting in their riches. They trusted in their power. So the perspective of the Bible 
is for those who were poor, for those who were oppressed. In fact, I was reading an article today that was, man, really an eye-opening article that talked about the history of the Jewish people and how you have the first setting of the Jewish people in Egypt as slaves. So they were under slavery, and of course, they were oppressed by Pharaoh's taskmasters, and they were, you know, finally freed from that. You know, and then they go into a land that was uh, not their own in in Canaan, uh, but they take the land of Canaan. But then, because of their disobedience, the Babylonians came in and carried them captive. So then you have, you know, part of the Bible that was written and has the perspective of those who were captive in Babylon. So again, the Israelites find themselves under oppression and under the rule of a great empire, Egypt being the great empire of their day, Babylon being the great empire of their day. And then you go, you know, several years later to the time of the New Testament, and you find Israel again under the oppression of the great empire, Rome. So you find this perspective of Israel not being those who were always on top, but those who were always on the bottom those who were always persecuted, those who were always taken advantage of, always oppressed. So we see God siding on the side of the oppressed and the poor and those who were being persecuted as, you know, rising up in the midst of that, how God would use them. So it's even in that perspective that we see James writing here and being decidedly on the side of the poor. So we have to understand something about the context that the Bible's presented itself in, you know, what's going on in history of those days, what perspective people uh, are writing it from, and then we'll be able to understand, you know, why James seems to hate rich people, you know, and it's not that at all, but it's the issues because they were being oppressed. You know, many Christians were even seen as being less than, and, and, and we find, you know, Nero coming on the scene, and, you know, he makes Christians his scapegoat and begins persecution on the Christians as well. So we constantly see these underlying themes that aren't always right in our face when we're reading something like this from our perspective. Um, because I've always been an American, and I've always been blessed, and, you know, my I've always been provided for. So, you know, reading some things from my perspective is different than getting ourselves in the shoes of those who are writing. And that's what this, that's what this class is really about, putting ourselves in the seats of those who are sitting here reading this letter as those who had left their homeland, as those who are being persecuted, those who are being oppressed, those that did not have anything, and we're putting ourselves in this perspective, seeing how God is speaking to them in this manner. So that's a small background on why James does what James does here and why, you know, he's led by God to say these things. But verse number nine of chapter one, you know, he starts out, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You know, so, and that's a recurring theme as well. You know, the humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and you'll be exalted. What did Jesus teach? Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are, and then he begins to list not the greatest people in society, but what society would see as the least greatest people 
in society, the poor, the meek, you know, the peacemakers, all, all of these kinds of people that Jesus is reversing the culture of his day. When Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last, when he goes to the rich young ruler, you know, and says, you know, you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Give away all that you have and sell it to the poor and follow me. And he begins to show that the rich young ruler was not able to do that. So uh, and Jesus says you know, how hard it is for those who trust in their riches to be a part of the kingdom of God. So even Jesus shows that language as well. He came to, you know, heal the brokenhearted, set the oppressed free, deliverance to the captives. So even that's Jesus' message to those lost sheep in Israel who even in the religious time in Israel were being oppressed by the you know, religious hierarchy in Israel at that time. So he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation by God and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Uh, for the sun rises with its scorched heat and withered flowers, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So again, he's talking about those who are the rich who are pursuing more at the expense of those who seem to be poor and lowly. Verse number 12, he goes back to, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So again, he's even speaking to those who are, whose trials are not coming from Satan, but coming from other people. You know, James will go on to talk about those who were working and receiving, you know, unfair wages and being taken advantage of, you know, by those who they were, you know, working for. So trials, that's why he says various trials, you know, because there were various things that people were facing. And what's James's message to these believers who were experiencing persecution, who were experiencing injustice, who were experiencing all of these various kinds of trials, remain steadfast. And he says, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Our reward comes from God, not from man. So endure trials. You know, stay strong and steadfast in the midst of affliction and persecution. And God will give you a crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. And then he talks how these temptations uh, do not come from God. Um, but when people are tempted, they're endured or they're drawn away by their own desire. Uh, and he talks about God being the giver of every good gift. Uh, so the good things in their life are coming from God. So he's setting the themes here in these first uh, 18 verses. So even in this, you can kind of see that even though James seems to be scattered all over the place, he's really not. Uh, so even, even the trials, even the wisdom... The theme of the rich and poor, they're all connected in here, and they're all brought together. So there's more cohesion in the, in the book of James than, you know, we think about sometimes. As we move into verse 19 through 27 of chapter 1, we find another theme of James's to the church, to the believers, is putting your faith into practice. As we said last week, James is not concerned with, with teaching a theology class or giving doctrine. James cares about the way people are living in their lives. To make sure that Christians are living like Christians. That they are doers of the word. 
So in our paper it says, as you read this section, think about what gives it a measure of cohesion, starting with anger and the tongue. James moves next to urge his readers to live out the word that they hear, especially regarding the tongue and caring for the poor. So that's the major thing, care, living out your faith, living out God's word, what God says. So we should not just hear the word, but we should be doers of the word. Verse 19 of James 1 You know, this is a verse many of us are probably familiar with. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He encourages them in verse 21 to put away all filthiness and and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls, to make you whole by being doers of the word, verse 22, and not hearers only. And we said this is an underlying theme as well to the message of the church in their exhortation, is that we said the church, you know, here when James is writing, you know, as I said last week, I think James is writing toward probably the end of the the 40s. So they're between probably 15 and 20 years old as believers now. And many of them, as we all do, have a tendency to grow stagnant in our faith. We have a tendency to be hearers of the word, but not quick to put what we hear into practice. As I've said, it's not the things about the Bible I don't know that give me problems. It's the things that I do know, yet fail to put into action in my life. You know, loving my enemy, you know, doing all these things that, you know, we don't think about. Being swift to hear and slow to speak. You know, that's something we probably all need to put uh, into practice in our lives today. Uh, But it's so easy just to say, we love God, we know God, we read our devotion for the day, and then we go on and not intentionally put these things into practice in our lives. So James encourages his believers here to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As we enter into, um, well, in verse 26 of chapter 1, let me hit this because this is a big theme as well, but it's a theme of of the tongue. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So again, we see this outward show of religion, but yet our walk with God should impact our everyday life. And for James here, that involves what we speak, what we are saying, uh, the tongue. And he's going to go back to that and we'll pick that up in just a little bit. As we enter into chapter 2, we have warnings against favoritism. He starts out in chapter 2 saying, My brother, show no partiality. Don't show favoritism to one group of people over another. And he gives the example in verse number 2, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he's in essence saying showing favoritism to one group of people over another To show favoritism is to put yourself in the judge's seat. And one of the main points that James makes is that none of us 
are qualified to sit in the judge's seat. There's only one person qualified to sit in the judge's seat, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So he says, when you've made distinctions like this in favor of one person because they come in and they, you know, have fine clothing, and, and then another person comes in and you, you know, basically just brush them off, he says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Then he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you? So again, again, when he's talking about rich, he's talking about those who oppress you. Are not the rich those who oppress you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. So he's getting this message to across to the church to not forsake and despise the poor and favor the rich who really In essence, he's saying, don't care anything about you or don't care anything about the poor because they oppress you, they drag you into court. And so that's the climate that that these Christians were living in. And he says the cure for that is to go back to the royal law. And James appeals more toward what he would call the royal law uh, and using those terms than Paul does. Uh, And there's reasons for that, and we'll talk about those in a minute. So he talks about not showing favoritism. Going on in chapter 2, as we go down to verse 14, this is where he talks about faith without works is dead. Verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things that they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself does not have works. uh, That does not have works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe, and he's having this, you know, hypothetical conversation. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? What, uh, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want an example of this? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see now that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, if you will, take your other paper, 
that says, does James and Paul contradict? You know, this is probably the best method to uh, read this passage in chapter 2, and that is how we've done it today, begin with chapter 1. And show us the themes, show us what James is concerned with, show us that he's warning against showing favoritism to the rich over the poor and, you know, casting the poor off aside. And then he's telling them to love your neighbor as yourself, to not show partiality, uh, but, you know, do what the law says. But then comes along this passage, and here's the mistake that's made. People take verses 14 through 26 or even some verses in 14 through 26, and just lift them up out of the context and say, well, see, James says you are justified by works. Paul says that you're justified by faith alone, not from works. Therefore, James says one thing. Paul says the exact opposite. Therefore, they contradict. And that's the worst thing you can do is, you know, take a few verses out of context and make them say something. You know, if we just read the context around verses, we'd oftentimes figure out what's going on. So I want to address this issue. Does James and Paul contradict? Does James say a man is justified by his works? Yeah, those words are here in that text. Does Paul say a man is not justified? You cannot be justified by works. Yes, Paul says that. Does James use the example of Abraham? To prove that a person is justified by works. Yes, James uses the example of Abraham to prove a person is justified by works. Does Paul use the example of Abraham to show that a person is not justified by works, but justified by his faith only? Yes, Paul does say that. So that, me saying that even pushes it down further in the road of contradiction. So let's look at these seeming contradictions. On this paper that says, does James and Paul contradict? Here's the main idea. We'll go ahead and give the main idea. There's a difference between doing, between doing good works because you are a Christian and doing religious works, or you could put law keeping, to become a Christian. So here's the contradicting scriptures, James 2.24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do not by faith alone. Romans 3.28, Paul writes, For we maintain that a person, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from them doing the law. Those seem to contradict. James 2.21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Romans 4, Paul says, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So, taking those two verses out and putting them side by side, they seem to say something different. Notice our bold sentence there. To resolve this contradiction, there are two important interpretive principles that we must consider. Number one, we have to define the context in which these words were said. Number two, we have to define the words 
the words. As I used the example last week, you could say, you know, it's, it's really cool in here. And you could say, hey, it's cool. We got flags. We have television screens. We have lights. We have all this. It's really cool. Or you could be like, no, it's, it's kind of cool in here. You know, my wife oftentimes will say, I'm hot. I said, I know you are, baby. And sometimes I'll say, I'm hot, and she looks at me weird, you know? So you can use the same words, but they don't mean the same. You're not intending them to mean the same thing. Well, that's what's going on here between James and Paul. They're not writing against each other. They're writing in their own context. When James is writing this, he's probably not thinking about Paul. When Paul's writing that, he's probably not thinking about James. And then you have to decide which came first, James or Paul. You know, would, would James... I think James is probably written first. Uh, you know, is Paul coming along correcting James? Well, no, there's no evidence of that. The evidence is found in the context and the definition of the words. So let's look at the context. There are three things we want to mention in context. The subject, the audience, and the perspective. Again, the subject, when Paul is speaking, Paul is addressing salvation how one comes to God, and how he is justified before God. When James is speaking, his subject is not how to become a Christian. He's speaking to those who are already Christians. James is addressing the Christian life and how we are justified not before God, but how we're justified before others. Paul is concerned with our relationship like this between us and God. James is concerned with our relationship like this between us and others. God knows our hearts. People don't know our hearts. They only know what they see from us. Specifically, believers, as we've already seen, were showing favoritism to the rich while discriminating against the poor in their community. So that's what James is addressing. When we go to the audience, who is Paul speaking to? Well, Paul is speaking to really young Christians and young churches, churches that he has planted in some cases and have went on and checked back in with them. They're not very mature in the faith, and he's writing to these believers. He's also speaking to those who were unsaved, persuading them concerning Christ. He's also speaking in the context of Judaizers, those who are coming into the church, telling the church, you have Jesus, but you must keep the law in order to be saved. You must be circumcised. The whole, we went through the whole book of Galatians that was about these Judaizers coming in saying, you are justified, you need to be justified by keeping the law. James is speaking to a group of believers who probably around 15 to 20 years have already been a part of the church, who were settled in their faith and probably stagnant, who faith for them had become merely head knowledge, something they read, a creed they ascend to, and it's become merely orthodox. They had religion without a living relationship. And we see this because they're acting contrary to what Jesus would have them to do. And then on the back of that page, we have the perspective. 
Paul is really coming from the perspective of a theologian who's setting doctrine in a church, who's dealing with false teachers, protecting the flock. James is not coming at it from that perspective. James is coming from the perspective of a pastor dealing with people in the everyday life of a congregation who many have grown complacent in their faith. So the subject, the audience, and the perspective from Paul and James are totally different. They're not even playing on the same ball field. They're not playing the same sport. They are totally looking and speaking and talking about two totally different things. The second thing we have to address is how they define words. How they define words. They both use the term justified. Well, to, just, to be justified, justified means to render righteous or to be such as one ought to be. And it's even clear from Paul's teachings. Just take Romans chapter 6, for instance. Righteousness is a standing before God. Righteousness is also how you live your life. So there's two aspects to righteousness. We are righteous before God. We live righteously before others. And for a Christian, those two things should come in alignment. But here's the thing. Before God, we are declared righteous and justified before God without having to do anything. And then we enter into a life of sanctification as we're growing in our faith. So our righteous walk is matching our righteous standing before God. Our righteous walk doesn't determine our standing, but our righteous standing should determine our righteous walk before God. But the moment we are justified before God, we're not perfect. We're growing, we're learning, we're being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is working in us every day. So for Paul, when Paul speaks of justification... He's speaking of a primarily legal term as in a person's right standing before God. He also uses the term the way James does it as well. We just, he uses the idea that James uses, just maybe not in the exact terms. James, justification, James isn't concerned with a person's relationship with God. James is concerned how a person lives his life out before others. So for James, justification isn't a legal term, it's a practical term. And it is the recognition of one's righteousness on the basis of its result. What is your justification doing? What is your righteousness doing? For Paul, you are justified, right, made right with God in the eyes of God. God knows your heart. James, you are justified, right with God. How are you justified? In the eyes of man. So when someone looks at your life, can they see your faith in you? God knows your heart. People don't. People only know what they see from you. So when James talks about justification, Paul talks about justification. They use the same word, but they use it differently. Paul, you're justified how you're justified before God. James, how you're justified before others and how they see your justification. They both use the term faith. For Paul, faith is the essential trust that someone places in Christ for salvation. Faith is a life-changing encounter, a transaction between laying down your old life and picking up a, a new life. 
dying to the old nature and receiving the new nature by faith, the deep trust that we've talked about. When James, it's a very positive connotation when Paul talks about it. When, Paul, when James talks about faith, he's talking about a certain kind of faith. If you notice back in verse 14, he says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works. He says, can that, and that's the article before that, can that faith, can that kind of faith, what kind of faith? A faith that says, but doesn't do. So for James, faith is not a positive thing. Faith to James is what he's dealing with, a certain kind of faith that he's, people have that is lip service to God, but not lived out every day where James treats faith as a lip service or allegiance to orthodoxy, merely mental assent. So when they say faith, they're talking about two different things. James talking about, he's talking about the kind of faith that he is seeing from the people that he is speaking to and writing to. Paul's speaking of something different. When they use the word works, they use the word works. They're speaking of two totally different kind of works. When Paul speaks of works, he's talking about the works of the law, the legal requirements of the law as relating to God. So when Paul talks about works, he talks about being circumcised. When the Judaizers are coming in telling you you need to be circumcised. He's talking about them telling you you have to keep certain Sabbaths or certain holy days or you have to keep certain dietary and food laws. This legalism that people have come into the church with. So when Paul talks about works, he's talking about these legal demands that people are putting on Christians. Circumcised, keeping feast days, food laws, you know, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, all of this. When James talks about works, and even using the term the royal law, he's not speaking of circumcision, he's not speaking of legalistic religious works. He's appealing to the moral aspect of the law. Loving God and loving your neighbor. The moral requirements of the law is relating to others. So if you notice, here's what's missing from this passage of Scripture. Circumcision, Sabbath days, holy days, feast days, dietary laws. Here's what it says as far as works. If your brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food. And you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need. What good is that? The works that James is talking about is caring for others, caring for the poor, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for orphans and widows. That's what James is talking about. He's not talking about, you know, these religious legalisms that are put on people. So James is saying, if you say you have faith, but you despise and neglect those who have needs around you and you can help provide for them and don't, he says, your faith is no good. It's merely lip service. People are going to see that and they're not going to see anything in you that would say, I have faith in God. So you, we can see how the audience, the subject, the words they use are two totally different things. Now, the interesting part is, is that 
Paul says many of the things that James says. Paul has many imperatives, things for Christians to do. You know, the scripture is down here on our paper, Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And to what James is writing, Paul would say, amen. To what Paul is writing here in Galatians chapter 5, James would say, amen. We agree 100%. For the things that James is concerned about is the same things that Paul is concerned about. But using these hot button terms, you know, putting them against each other is easy to do on the surface, but you must dig a little bit. And I see the same things happening today when we use certain words and phrases or language. We interpret it one way. Somebody coming from a totally different context would interpret it a different way. So in essence, the Christian life is not about law-keeping, but about a faith that works by love. And the royal law of love, as James says, is summed up. And Jesus said, to love your neighbor as you love yourselves. Of course, Jesus would take it a step further when he would say, love one another as I have loved you. So we see here in chapter 2, there really is no contradiction We have to get through some of the stuff we have to deal with to understand that. But in essence, James is saying, if you say you have faith, but you are despising the poor, you're showing favoritism, you're not clothing the naked, not feeding the hungry when you have the ability to do so, he says, that kind of faith is severely lacking. And um, he says, the faith, true faith is a whole lot better than that. It's faith that works. It's faith that works. As we go into chapter 3, we find some dissension within the believing community. Um, In chapter 3, he goes into the issue of the tongue, the tongue. Chapter 3 in James verse 1 says, not many of you should become teachers. So he kind of starts out in that way. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For if we all stumble, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. James is going to say, the tongue will get you in trouble. And if you can tame the tongue, you won't have no problems with anything else in your life. You know, I think we would all probably say amen to that. So he says, he's a perfect man who's able to bridle his whole body if he can tame one thing, and that is the tongue. For the old saying that I heard growing up, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the most untrue saying that there's ever been in the history of saying. And the fact is, words hurt, and they hurt deep, and they can hurt for years deep. And um, so being conscious of the words that we use as believers is so very important. For Proverbs teaches us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and that we will eat from our own words that we speak. And, he, and I, I love how he, all the illustrations he uses here when talking about the tongue, there's just so many different illustrations. In verse 3, he used the illustration as uh, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at ships. They are large and they're driven by strong winds, but yet are guided by a very small 
rudder. He says, and so it is with the tongue. It's a small member of the body, yet it boasts of great things. And our speech and our tongue and our words really set the course and the direction of our lives. You know, we have to remember that all of our words are really seeds that will end up growing in our lives. Jesus is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is a reoccurring theme all throughout Scripture. But he talks about the importance of it. And then he says, a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Therefore, by such a, a, a small tongue, can, you can light worlds on fire by that. He talks about that in verse 8, that no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says, with the tongue, we bless the Lord. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You see how the problem is, with the, not with the Scriptures we don't know, but the problems we have is with the Scriptures we do know. That oftentimes, I find myself, and if we're honest, we all find ourselves oftentimes blessing God in one side of our mouth and cursing others on the other side of our mouth. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then he uses more examples, more vivid imagery. Does a spring pour forth of the same opening fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So he's talking about their tongue. And obviously there is dissension in the communities because he's getting ready to talk about in verse 4 quarrels that are happening among the believers. So he's saying part of your problem is your mouth. Part of your problem is what you're saying. Part of your problem is you're blessing God. And this goes back to what he's talking about in chapter 2. You know, you say you have faith, but by your actions, you show you don't. You say you love God and you bless God, but by your words, you say something contrary. Your things aren't lining up here. So the importance of taming the tongue. And as you go uh, from chapter 13 or verse 13 through verse 18, again, he goes back to talk about this issue of wisdom. And we need wisdom in the words that we use. He says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's that theme, showing your works. Be doers of the word. Verse 14 of chapter 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. In verse 17, he goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's the issues going on among these believers. They're showing favoritism. Their works don't line up with their faith. They're using their words to hurt and to harm and to bless God on one side and curse with the other. Their, their wisdom is not, their wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, jealousy, selfishness. And then in, verse, and then in chapter 4, he begins with even more he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
He's saying you're battling in your own selves. That's what's causing all of these things. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You rather steal than ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. Everything you do is selfish. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with, with God? And to me, it also would seem, you know, I don't want to read into it too much, but it also seemed that their, their passions are more in line going back to who they favor. Those come in with money and influence and good clothes and they want to be like that. And they're battling these selfish ambitions. They want, but they can't have. So they bite and devour one another and, and murder. And when they do receive, they ask they receive, they spend it wrongly and they let their passions dictate how they spend their lives. And they want to be like these people that they're showing favoritism to instead of being like Jesus who humbles himself and who calls us to humble ourselves and serve one another instead of being served. So I think that's an underlying theme. I don't want to read too much into it, but I like to connect these dots to see what, what James is really speaking about. And he goes on to speak about in verse, um, where's my number? Verse six in verse, in chapter four. He, gives, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. When you read, I love, I love the Bible. When you read it in context, the devil is the one who's tempting them in their passions. Remember, James says back in James chapter 1, God's not the one who tempts you. He says, you, you have your own passions and they arise. And he said, and he's now giving this, this image of the devil coming to tempt you. And he says, if you want to resist the devil resist to, and resist being proud, resist, you know, pushing down others, resist showing favoritism to the rich and those who have fine things, submit yourselves to God in his way. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. For God opposes the proud. The devil's trying to get us to be proud to look down, to judge on others, to fight and quarrel, to use our tongue to, to talk down to other people. That's what the devil's doing. It's not, you know, my dryer broke today, get thee behind me, devil, you know, or my car didn't start, or, you know, my heating bill went up $50. The devil's after me. It's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about our attitudes on the inside of us and, and the way to get that devilish pride, as he just talked about in chapter 3, that selfish ambition and the earthly wisdom is demonic. He just said that in chapter 3. So the devil here is working in our own pride and passions who would have us to live opposed to God. And that's why he's saying we need to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. And by doing that, is submitting ourselves to God, by drawing near to God, verse 8, by cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts, and in verse 10, humble ourselves, and by verse 11, not speaking evil against our brothers or judging our brothers, but again, go back and appealing to we have a judge in Jesus Christ, and we want to judge others, but also knowing that we're going to be judged ourselves, and he ends, who are you to judge your neighbor? It's amazing what the scripture will say when you read it right. It really is. Because so many times it turns it back in on us for us to examine our own hearts and our own actions.
Then when he comes into chapter 13, or verse, I keep saying chapter 13, verse 13 going into chapter 5, he warns against two things. He warns against arrogance and he warns against wealth. The arrogance, he says in verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go and do such and such and go to a town and spend a year there. He says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Don't be so arrogant to assume that we know what tomorrow will bring. Boy, if we haven't learned this verse in the past two months, you know, we all, I know I had plans, you know, I had places I was going to go. I had concerts I was going to go to. I had trips I was, I had conferences I was going to go to. All of it got canceled because I don't know tomorrow. I didn't see this coming and nobody else saw it coming as well. We can't be so arrogant to think that we know it all. He says, for here's what we say. We say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So a lot of the underlying conflict that they have is their own pride and arrogance. And he's saying, we need to take it down a notch and humble ourselves. We need to take it down a notch and begin to live like Jesus would have us to live. Verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and All such boasting is evil, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So he gives a warning against arrogance. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he gives the warning against the rich. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments. I mean, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure. So he's speaking about these these rich who are boasting in their wealth and thinking they are somebody because of what they have. And James is saying there's going to come a time when all that you have will collapse among you because they've gotten it dishonestly in this case. Look in verse number four. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you've kept back by fraud. You're defrauding those who are working for you. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So he has some strong words here about the rich who, again, are arrogant. The rich who who oppress others and who've taken advantage. And he's saying those days of you taking advantage of others will come to an end for you. Then he goes on in verses 7 through 11. And he talks about endurance in these days. And he talks about be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then the idea here, you know, the coming of the Lord, things are going to be set right. That there's coming a time when the rich, you know, here would be exposed and be humbled or humiliated, as he said in chapter 1. And the poor and the lowly would be exalted. There's coming a reversal. It's the kingdom of God. Where the kingdom of God, the meek, the poor, are blessed And the powerful that think there's something are brought down low. 
It's the reversal. It's the kingdom of God, the coming of our Lord, the new setting of this kingdom, a new way of living. So he's now saying here, wait, be patient. You who are suffering, you who are oppressed, be patient. Just wait. For those who oppress you, their time is coming. For you who are lowly, your time is coming to be exalted. So be patient. Establish your hearts. Do not grumble against one another that you may be judged. For the judge is standing at the door. Saying you need to, again, humble yourselves. And then he goes on to talk about the prophets and how the prophets are an example. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And he's coming to an end of this letter the way he started it, by endurance, steadfast, standing strong in the Lord. He appeals not just to the prophets, but to Job as the patience of Job or the steadfastness of Job. He encourages them in verses 12 through 20, some concluding exhortations to let their yes be yes and their no be no. He speaks to those who are suffering to call for the elders of the church, those who are sick, call for the elders of the church to pray over them, anoint them with oil, that the prayer of faith will save, will make whole the sick, that sins would be forgiven, that they would come together by prayer, just as Elijah did, that while they're waiting, they are praying, they're appealing to the Lord. And it ends in verse 19 and 20 with restoration. That if any among you wonders and someone brings them back, if people hear the words that James is writing and, and they preach these words and they come back, he says, you brought a sinner from his ways and from his wandering you will save his soul from death and love and it will cover a multitude of sins. Paul says that as well. Love covers a multitude of sins. And what is love? Love is the working out of our faith. And if we do all these things that James is saying, we will walk in love toward one another. To me, this is a powerful letter that oftentimes, you know, we pick a few things out, but I think when you go through it like what we've gone through today, you begin to see it. I know I have seen it in a whole different light as we look here. So the last paragraph on our paper, James is the New Testament counterpart of Jewish wisdom tradition now in the light of the teachings of Jesus Although James is sometimes read in contrast to Paul, both James and Paul are, in fact, absolutely together at the crucial point made by James throughout this letter. Namely, the first thing one does with one's faith is to live by it. So I would encourage us, let's live out our faith. Let's keep ourselves submitted to God, humbled in His sight, that we may live our faith and be an example to the world as people who have truly been impacted by God's grace and his favor. Amen?